Please take your Bibles and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're visiting with us or misplaced your Bible and you need one for this morning, uh, go on that chair underneath the seats. You'll find a black Bible. You can pull that out and go to the back of that Bible. Find page 142. 142. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1 and we'll read to chapter 7 verse 1. That goes together. Chapter 6 verse 1 to chapter 7 verse 1. I'll read and then we'll do our study. And working together with God We also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For God says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Look, now is the acceptable time. Look, now is the day of salvation. Giving no opportunity for offense in anything, in order that the ministry may not be discredited. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses. Verse 5, in beatings, and imprisonments, and tumults, and labors, and sleeplessness, and hunger, in purity, and knowledge, and patience, and kindness, and the Holy Spirit in real love, in the word of truth, and the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, by glory and dishonor, by slander and praise, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet known, as dying yet look, we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Verse 11, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You're not restrained by us, but you're restrained by your own affections. Now in the same exchange, as to children I speak, you yourselves open wide also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship is light with darkness, Or what harmony has Christ with Belair? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Verse 16, Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we ourselves are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's important to understand words and how those words were used in history. If we don't, Up can mean down, down can mean up. For example, 
Antifa, the anti-fascists today. They're socialists, anti-capitalists, anti-white supremacists. They're for total equality. And for the use of violence and property damage as well. I'm just reading to you what the information from USA Today, CNN, Wikipedia. This is what they said about Antifa or the anti-fascists of today. Though there are similarities with historic anti-fascists, what's interesting is historically, anti-fascists did not believe in the things that are promoted today by anti-fascists. For example, in yesteryears, anti-fascists embraced the doctrine of pacifism. It was fascists who repudiated pacifism. As a matter of fact, fascists wanted war and violence. Interesting. Anti-fascists of yesteryears, of the 1920s and 30s, they embraced socialism or communism. Some embraced democracies as well. Anti-fascists of the 20s and 30s embraced the rule of the majority. Some embraced individualism. Others embraced total equality, but they embraced total equality because they embraced communism. Why do I bring this up? Because people say, well, I'm this, but this means that. And that means this. You're confusing people. Appearances can be deceiving. Is that not the principle that we've seen in 2 Corinthians? You cannot always go by appearances because they can be very deceiving. We must be clear. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They thought this was good, but it was really bad. They thought this was very bad, but in actuality, it was good. We've seen this paradox throughout the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, a church that was just very difficult to deal with. And so here we come to this boasting in our weakness, boasting in our Lord, and to the Corinthians, they go, oh, boasting in weakness is bad. No, no, it's, it's actually good, because we're boasting in our Lord. No, we're, we're supposed to boast in our strength. That's boasting in the Lord. No, that's bad. You see what I mean? They were confused. And so once again, we have another paradox. Reject, receive. What they thought you should reject, Paul's saying you should receive. What they thought you should receive, Paul says you guys should reject. You guys are confused. Reject, receive, or to put it in statements for you, to receive God's grace is to receive Christ crucified and risen and everything that goes with it. Which, as we have read, it means suffering. It means we separate from those who are opponents of his grace, those who say they've embraced the shameful, glorious gospel, but they've really rejected it. 
Here's another statement for you. Without reconciling to Paul himself, the Corinthians would not experience true reconciliation to God and receiving apostolic authority could not take place. They must receive Paul and reject the opponents, but they were doing the complete opposite. They were rejecting Paul, which means they were rejecting the gospel, which means they were rejecting grace. because they were judging based upon appearance. This is what he looks like. He was a loser. We don't embrace him. We embrace the super apostles. I still got to get that picture. I have that picture of my son Drew. They're, they're sick. A few of them are sick, so I, I don't want to put up there. So yeah, it's a great picture of a super apostle. It's like, it's there in my day. It looks really good. <laughs> so I'll scan it in over the next couple of weeks and we'll put it up there and that's what they were confused like oh look at the super positive we're supposed to embrace them and receive them or reject Paul but you don't understand you're actually rejecting the gospel what are you doing God does his work in the gospel word and Paul was a messenger of this word. Not just in word, but also by his body and life. You realize ministers and pastors are the embodiment of the gospel. Not just in what we say, but our very lives display it. And suffering and hardships and in difficulties. And yet these were ways and terms not requested, certainly not expected by the Corinthians. Oh, they didn't want that. But you you see here, you will see, Paul was, he was after their hearts. Paul sought their hearts and affections. So he appealed to them to receive God's grace and to receive him as their apostle. It went together. And they would do this by embracing him and shunning or rejecting the opponents of the gospel. And that's where verses 14 and following come in. So first, first point, receive God's grace. Or truly reconciled to God. And when you say receive God's grace, it means you will receive suffering. Notice how it begins there in verse 1 of chapter 6. And working together with God. He's connecting that with what he says from verse 21 of chapter 5. We're working together with God, and with Him we're working together we appeal or we exhort or we encourage. We're imploring you. Don't receive grace in vain. God was the one who appealed to the Corinthians through Paul. They needed to turn away from the world and turn toward God and receive grace. Grace is God's gift in Christ. Interesting. What does this mean? Somebody asked me this a few weeks ago. This this church was was treating Paul like this. 
They weren't acting like Christians. Exactly. So is Paul saying they're not Christians? Not necessarily, and yet Paul would later encourage them to examine themselves to see if they were in the faith. Chapter 13, verse 5. The question wasn't if they were Christians or not. This is the question. In which Christ did they believe? Did they truly believe in the crucified Christ? Proclaimed by Paul? Or another Christ? Remember the Christ, this is, our, this is our place where we designated that for 2 Corinthians. Christ and the cross, their shame, their disdain is disgraceful. And yet, in that weakness is power, grace, love, compassion, glory. Is, 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 is that the Christ they've embraced? Because if they have... That means they will suffer. If they have, it means they will show each other that same grace. If they have, it means they would embrace Paul. I'm I'm not so sure they wanted to do that. Have they believed in this gospel in vain? Had it really made an impact in their hearts and lives? The evidence was pointing to the contrary. They betrayed the heart of the gospel. They denied the one who proclaimed it. They pledged their allegiance to others. So Paul appeals to them, receive God's grace. And notice he quotes something to give some oomph to what he's saying. Verse two, for God says, quotes Isaiah 49 verse eight, we read part of that this morning, at the right time I listened to you on the day of salvation, I helped you. He's interpreting it as Christ appealing to God. And God delivered him, yet not apart from facing suffering. At the right time, God delivered. You know what that means. One writer put it like this, quote, salvation requires waiting in patience and hope, end quote. Salvation means we wait with patience. Or as we will see a little bit later, we persevere. We persevere. Remembering, friends, God is always faithful. Did you not just sing it? Whate'er my God ordains is right. At the acceptable time, against all sights and appearances, the Lord promises and fulfills salvation at the acceptable time. The right time. Not when we deem it not how we deem it, not when we deem it. Whate'er my God ordains is right. That's why we sang this song. He brings light out of darkness. He brings a flowing stream out of the desert. Joy comes in sorrow. Hope comes in hopelessness. Life comes in death. Sin is overcome. That's how God does things in ways that we least expect, times that we least expect it. God works. That's why he says the next part of verse 2, now is the acceptable time. Look, now is the day of salvation. Why is he saying this? Well, because Christ fulfilled the Lord's promise to his servant and that now God does his new work of recreation. 
Remember, you just talked about that. Anyone that is in Christ, he's a new creation. God can change your heart now. And the Corinthians must come to see that their life, their identity, and their future is found in Jesus Christ alone, not in the parents'. The now or acceptable time is seen in Christ because in Him alone we meet and receive God in His grace because in the cross, that's where we see His love. In the cross, that's where we see His mercy. In the cross, that's where we see His grace. God will deliver His servant out of oppression, injustice, and even death itself at the acceptable time. And that acceptable time is found in Christ because in Christ we savingly meet God in all our miseries, in all our sufferings, in all our failures because He alone is our deliverance. Our satisfaction is found in Jesus alone. That's the grace that we receive. God always creates life and salvation when appearances say otherwise. I mean, look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. And the earth was formless and void. Darkness was there. And yet out of formlessness, God creates order. Out of the void, God creates something. And out of darkness, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's what God does. When you least expect it, when appearances and everything seems to go against you at the right time, God saves. And then then notice what he does here. Starting in verse three. But the apostle Paul, he suffered as a way to accomplish God's work in his life because at the acceptable time, God saves. So receiving God's grace in Christ, it meant receiving Paul as their suffering apostle and it means, means receiving suffering in your own life. Paul gives a self-commendation of himself. But it's subordinate to God's work in him. Because not only was he a messenger of the gospel word by his words, but by his very life. Notice what he says, verse 3. Giving no opportunity for offense in anything, in order that the ministry not be discredited. So, Paul did not want to give an opportunity for the gospel, for the stumbling of the gospel, so that the mission entrusted him would not be discredited. Yet, and this is the irony of it. He didn't want anyone to take offense, right? That's what he says. But it was the Corinthians who took offense at him. That's the irony of that. They took offense at Paul and his mission. But notice he says, commending there in verse four, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. He did not want to bring any reproach to that mission, but he commends himself, I'm God's agent, I'm God's emissary, that's who I am, that's who we are as apostles. Yet, God's way of salvation is a path of difficulty and suffering, not a path of unchanging blessing, contrary to the Corinthians thinking. That's what they thought. Oh, the Christian life should be your best life now. I've heard that before. 
That's the message of the prosperity gospel. They do not speak about suffering, hardships, difficulties, struggles. Oh, brush that all aside. And yet here you have these prosperity gospel preachers in Africa who are driving their Mercedes and their BMWs while the people have nothing. Paul commended himself as God's servant, enduring hardships and acting with integrity no matter his circumstances, good or bad. So, so what did God's agent look like? He appeared in weakness and distress. That's the agent. Not like 007 James Bond. No, no, not that type of agent. No, a, a weak, distressing bold-looking guy, shorty. Just like Jesus, though. Weakness, distress. And, and that, and this, this, what he's about to describe, it just blew up the Corinthians' expectations. It's like Paul put dynamite on it and went, and it just blew it all up. Their whole idea of what Christianity was supposed to be, it's gone. But don't we need to be reminded of this too? Because we default, or at least I do, default to thinking that we shouldn't be suffering. It's so cliche in our American culture. We just don't know what it's like. And, and, and notice how he begins this whole subject there in the middle of verse four, in much endurance or perseverance we persevere not only is this the first mark of an apostle this is the first mark of all Christians remember Paul's an apostle but he's a Christian well he's an apostle he's like oh yeah but remember it's just like watching a movie at an IMAX theater in 3D same movie it's just on steroids right same movie so he's a Christian and the first mark of an apostle and of all Christians, we persevere. Here's the thesis. We persevere, and then he's going to list it all out. We persevere, waiting for our salvation to come. We are new creations who wait for the final creation at the final resurrection. That's what we are. That's what we're doing. We persevere. Through thick and thin, economic distress or cancer, Hardships, toils, persecutions, we persevere. Notice he begins. In afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, there in the end of verse 4. Burdens he had to endure, repeatedly put in tight spots. Look at verse 5, he gives six concrete hardships. Three were sufferings from, by other persons, three were being difficulties, just being God's emissary in beatings and imprisonments and tumults, in labors and sleeplessness and hunger. This is what it's like to be an agent. This is what it's like to face this suffering which you face by other people. Look at verse 6. He looks at moral qualities. Verse 6, impurity, which means sincerity. Sincerity with God and with the Corinthians. 
in knowledge. Sincerity with the knowledge went with the knowledge of Christ in the glorious gospel. In patience, in kindness. Patience, he was slow to anger, tolerance, long-suffering with the weaknesses and difficulties of others. Kindness, he was bearing with the faults of others by actively doing them good, which Paul had done to the Corinthians. They were very difficult to get along with. Notice next part, he says, in the Holy Spirit, in real love. Endurance, patience, kindness, sincerity, love. That's not found in Paul. He didn't conjure those things up on his own. These are gifts given to him by God in the Spirit. That's why he says in the Spirit. And then uh, real love or unhypocritical love, once again, by the Spirit, a fruit given to him, which is given to all Christians. The fruit of the Spirit. Notice one fruit, the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Look at verse seven. In the word of truth, in the power of God. The word of truth is the gospel, the knowledge of the glorious Christ. And then you put that together with the power of God. God's power is seen in the truth of the gospel. The apostle was for the truth, not against it. Notice his weapons. He says there in verse seven, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, by glory and dishonor, by slander and praise. The work of his mission was the work that he had. He would proclaim the fact that people can be made right with God and be, become the righteousness of God. So he's armed with shield and armor, or excuse me, shield and sword for the left and for the right hand. The Lord of glory was dishonored. He was crucified. God's agent also bore scorn and dishonor for the glorious Christ. God's glory and praise was seen in the dishonored, slandered apostle on behalf of Christ. This is what he's describing. This is what it means to be an apostle. And then what he does here, starting in verse 8, like towards the end of verse 8 and in verse 9 and 10, he gives paradoxical experiences. So on the one side, how the apostle was appeared or, or was perceived by others. But then on the flip side was how, how he really was, the reality. So notice there in verse 8, he says, as deceivers, that's why you have there in your New American Standard, says, regarded as deceivers and yet true. Oh, is that not what the Corinthians thought? They regarded Paul as some charlatan. But in reality, he was for real. They were confused. We should reject Paul and receive the super apostles. Are you crazy? You're rejecting the grace of God. To receive the gospel was to receive Paul. To receive Paul was to receive the gospel. Uh, Jesus said that. Matthew chapter 10 verse 40. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me receives my words receives me and the one who sent me uh, the gospel is the truth but the world calls it deception right what the world presents as truth is really a lie and is unveiled by the gospel look at verse 9 as unknown yet well known or really another way to translate it is like this unaccepted and accepted 
Paul sought the acceptance of the Corinthians. They would not accept him. But whether they did or not, it didn't matter. God truly accepted him. Notice he says, dying, yet look, we live. Many situations where Paul was close to death, and yet God delivered him. He was not done with him. As punished, or, or disciplined is another way you can translate that, yet not killed, God disciplines his children through sufferings and trials. But in those trials, Paul was not killed. God spared his life. And they, this is what the Corinthians thought. They, they, they thought that Paul, he was, he's just some nobody, so he relied on deceit to try and become a somebody. Uh, he's just irresponsible. He's in constant danger and with death. So he suffered for his trouble. I mean, he lacked the power that wealth could afford. He was just a big dork. As Paul. That's what they thought. But the opposite was true. Notice what he says next. There in verse 10. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, grieving. In his very existence, Paul would grieve He grieved over the churches. He grieved over Corinth. And yet he says, rejoicing always. Because he saw suffering in light of God's promises fulfilled in Christ. He saw God's purposes. He saw the big picture. Notice, he says next there in verse 10, as poor, yet making many rich. Paul had nothing. I mean, according to today's standards, he, he didn't own a house. He didn't own a car. Well, I guess I didn't have any cars. He didn't own a mule. How's that? that better? He didn't have a horse. He didn't have anything. Paul had little to nothing. But as an heir of God's promises, he was rich, and by proclaiming the gospel and people responding to that message, he would be made rich in Christ. Because true riches are found in Jesus. And then notice what he says, the last part of verse 10, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. In this life, we truly have nothing, but in light of the eschaton, Eschaton means last things. In light of the last things that's coming, Paul, we own the whole world. We don't bank on the things of this world. Wisdom, power, wealth, mere idols. You look around. Christian, you own everything. It's just a matter of time. We will rule with Christ this world. All things are yours, he said to the Corinthians in his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse two, 22. All things are given to us as followers of Christ. We own everything. We belong to Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, and yet we have nothing. And yet we possess everything. All that to say, Christ is the one who satisfies our souls more than the absence of afflictions and more than the abundance of wealth. He satisfies. Here's, here's the agent of God, the emissary, the ambassador. 
And to receive his appeal is to be reconciled to God. Receive God's grace. Which connects with the next part. Receive God's agent. And this is probably one of the most emotional appeals that Paul has ever done in any of the letters he's ever written. Look at what he says. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Literally, our mouths has been made open. In other words, we're not holding anything back. We're not kind of in the shadows with you. We're wide open to you. We're transparent with you. He made himself vulnerable to them. And he, he spoke to them as if he was right there. They were close to his heart by him opening it wide to them. And he was asking them, excuse me, he was asking them to welcome him. And and then notice, that's why he says, our heart is open wide, you see that? And then notice verse 12. You're not restrained by us, but you're restrained by your own affections. What's he saying? Uh, we're not the ones who restrain you so you can't be forthright, real, and loving and you're embracing us. You are. It's your affections, O Corinthians. They were the ones that harbored the suspicions. They were the ones that harbored the doubts. They were the ones that rejected Paul. They were the ones that didn't want him to be the minister. It was them. So that's why he says the problem was them, not him. You have chosen not to embrace or love us. And and then he says this in verse 13. Now in like exchange, in other words, in the same exchange, make an equal return for what he given to them. But then he he makes this little statement. I speak as to children. You're acting like children who behave in childlike ways. So stop behaving like children who are having bad attitudes toward their parent. I don't want to do that. Notice he challenged their pride while expressing love. Tough love. He was their parent. Notice he's basically saying, I have apostolic authority based on Christ. So what does he say? You yourselves open wide also. We've opened our affections to you. Why don't you open your affection to me? I've given you my unrestricted affection for years. Now it is time for you to give me yours or else what's left for us to do? Where do we go from here if you do not give me your affection? Yes, parents are sinners. They are weak. They'll never be perfect. But to harbor ill will, stubbornness, pride, holding it against you, Well, years ago you did this and months ago you did this. 
You're not living what you say you believe. You have not embraced grace. You see? All of that, that attitude, is unchristian. That's why he tells them, when you receive God's grace, you're receiving me. And then, the last point we have. Reject God's opponents. Or separate from God's opponents. Break ties with them, the ones who are causing all this ruckus. Reject God's opponents. Now a question. How would Paul know that they have opened their hearts to him? They broke ties with the opponents. This is the connection of, of this, this passage, chapter 6, verse 14, to chapter 7, verse 1. It connects to the previous part. See, what was the thing that kept them from having a love and response towards Paul? The rival suitors that vied for their affections. Stop doing things that bring division between us, i.e., listening to these disgruntled leaders, the cranky super apostles. They were super apostles, yeah, they were cranky. You're not listening to me. You're called to separate from these persons. Notice, he's not telling them to separate from a practice. And this is not just a general warning. Now, we use this to say, see, this is why a Christian shouldn't marry a non-Christian. Right? And I'm not saying you can't apply it this way. It may have application in that way. But we need to understand what Paul actually meant when he wrote this. He was telling the Corinthians to reject those super apostles. Stop being unequally yoked with people who say that they're Christians when they're really not. That's what he's saying. Separate themselves from unbelievers who disguise themselves as believers. That's what he's saying here. That's what this passage means. These so-called believers, as those called, they're called by Christ to be apostles. Oh, that's a lie. No, they weren't. And, and, and he gives five rhetorical questions to, to contrast the identity of, of Christians and non-Christians, and then he affirmed who they were as God's people, God's temple, appealing to them based upon the promises. Notice how he begins there in verse 14. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. A common labor with unbelievers. Who is he talking about? <laughs> the opponents. <laughs> the super apostles. And those the rhetorical questions. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? They were the righteousness of God in Christ. They shared no participation in lawlessness. Lawlessness was sums up the world. Notice the next part. What fellowship is light with darkness? They were new creations in Christ, seeing the light of the gospel in the glorious Christ. God created light out of darkness. Why, 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 why are you having anything to do with them? There in verse 15. What harmony is Christ with Belair or Belair? They lived in a relationship with Christ who had become their sin and, and in him they became God's righteousness. Belair or Belair, it's Hebrew. It comes from the Hebrew of Belial. 
where you get the, the word Baal or Baal. It means worthlessness, nothingness. What does Christ have to do with these worthless opponents? Yikes. He just went, right, these opponents. And yet to the Corinthians, they were highly prized, weren't they? See? Notice he says, what common, there, verse 15, what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Nothing. One loves Christ, the other rejects Christ. This is why I mentioned the gospel earlier in our service. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to respond to Christ today because as of right now, you are rejecting Jesus. And my friend, God is rejecting you. But if you come to Christ, he will save you. If you come to Christ, you will receive compassion. If you receive his grace, oh, he'll give you his grace. It's found in Jesus. One loves Christ, the other rejects Christ. Notice the next part there in verse 16. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in chapter 6, he calls the Christians the temple of God. Believers are God's new temple built upon Christ. And then he, so he climaxes here to the finale. He says, for we ourselves are the temple of the living God. He's not just saying we in terms of the apostles, but we collectively together. God's promises, all of God's promises are initially fulfilled in the church in Christ and all of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. And notice he says of the living God, as opposed to dead idols, God communicates with his people in the living word given in the written word. All of God's promises find their yes, hallelujah, and amen in Jesus. This is who you are. What are you doing hanging out with these opponents? And notice the proof. The next part of verse 16. Just as God has said, I will dwell among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Quotes from Leviticus chapter 26, Jeremiah 31. God has changed their hearts. We're part of the new covenant. He dwells among us. He walks among us. Since we are his temple, we're his people. The promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. Uh, God belongs to us. We belong to God. All in Christ crucified. He's our God. We're his people. Therefore, verse 17, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. Now he quotes from Isaiah 52. And then later he quotes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. This is who we are in Christ. We're the temple. God belongs to us. We belong to Him. We've been changed, new creations. Blah, 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 blah. Based on the promises, they're all fulfilled in Christ, come out from their midst. He demanded them to act, but it proceeds from what he has done in Christ because God's work in us has been done in Christ. We should act and do. Separating from the persons, so-called unbelievers. Excuse me, so-called believers that are really unbelievers. Look, if we belong to Christ, we're different from the world. Then we should live differently from the world. If we're identified as being in Christ, God accepts us and welcomes us as his children. We should be separate, different. 
we've been accepted by God in spite of who we are, all because it's done in Christ. And, and, and notice he says, we're not just a temple. We're of royal blood. We're not just family, we're blood. Look at what he says in the next part of verse 17. And I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is the promise of a, a son of David. It finds fulfillment, initial fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus. This is who we are. Not just a temple. Family. He's our father. We're his sons and daughters. So, with the appeal to receive grace and receive him, with the appeal that he gives to separate from the opponents and then the proof that he gives, exhort him, this is who you are in Christ, the temple, come out from their midst. Chapter seven, verse one. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves based on promises which find their yes and amen in Christ we act or live out the gospel. The action cleanse ourselves of all defilement of flesh and spirit. Flesh, that which defiles our bodily existence and our spirits, which I take it to mean our attitudes. So in other words, we we cleanse our total personality. And then notice this last part that he says, Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What does he mean? Perfecting, it can mean accomplishing or maturing. Maturing holiness in the fear of God. So what does he mean to say when he says this? As we stand in awe of God, we have a sense of heaviness or weightiness is what it means to fear God. So as we have already been sanctified in Christ, we grasp in life and experience what has been done to us in Christ. We experience this in our lives. We experience with the experiences of life. And part of that is what he just mentioned. We suffer. That's where we experience it. And one of the first things these Corinthians could do is repent of their rejection of Paul as their apostle, pastor, and truly embrace him as such. Receive grace, receive me, reject the opponents, which, talking, speaking about repentance, that's what we're going to look at next week. There's repentance there. There's repentance in the Corinthian church. Last point. To receive God's grace, it's to receive Christ crucified and risen and everything that goes with it, which means suffering. It means we separate from those who are opponents of His grace, those who say they've embraced the shameful, glorious gospel, but they've really rejected it. Reject, receive. And God, we pray, and once again, in how we treat each other amongst us as a church that we will not reject grace but will display that same grace to each other that same grace that you've shown to us realizing that as we live this grace it means we live it in suffering 
So help us to persevere by the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us the grace to persevere. If you would take some time and let your mind dwell on these things. May you think and ponder what we've seen from the scriptures here in 2 Corinthians. Then after a few moments of silence, we'll worship in our giving, we'll worship singing two more songs, our closing prayer. We'll do those things, but I really want to encourage you to just these few moments this day just take in let your mind dwell in these things of what we've seen from God's word. Think about it. Ponder it.